God's Word in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8. Second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes these words, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is that not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what, you're, what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just pray that this time of uh, dwelling in your word would be a time that you are glorified, glorified in our lives and in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, heard the story of a man who uh, worked in a post office. His job was to process all the mail that uh, had illegible addresses. Now, uh, one day a letter came to his desk addressed in shaky handwriting to God. He thought, well, I'd better open this and see what it's all about. So he opened it and it read, Dear God, I'm an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. And yesterday someone stole my purse. It had $100 in it, which was all the money I had until my next pension check. Next Sunday is Mother's Day. And I had invited my last two friends over for dinner. Without that money, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to, and you are my only hope. Can you please help me? The uh, postal worker was touched, and so he went around showing the letter to everybody else. Each of them dug into his wallet and came up with a few dollars, and by the time he had made the rounds, he'd collected $96, which they put in an envelope and sent over to her. 
the rest of the day, all the workers felt a warm, warm glow thinking of the nice thing that they had done for this lady. Mother's Day came and went, and a few days later came another letter from the old lady to God. All the workers gathered around while the letter was being opened. It read, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to fix a lovely dinner for my friends. We had a very nice day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. By the way, there were four dollars missing. And it was no doubt those thieves at the post office. <laughs> yeah, all those who groaned, you'll be telling that joke later on. So, I want to talk about generosity this morning. See, in these middle chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's focus is on Christian maturity and what it looks like lived out in the lives of God's people as individuals and as a community. And his major topic in this chapter is generosity. See, Paul's theme is that generosity is an expression of the gospel itself in the lives of those who have already shown, as he puts it, the kind of godly sorrow that brings the repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, which is Paul's way of describing here people coming to faith. Now, Paul begins uh, this discussion of a mature faith in bringing up the Macedonian church as an example to the church in Corinth. And uh, if you've got your Bibles there, in verse 6 of this chapter, Paul is saying that the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches is the same grace he desires for the Corinthians as well. Like the Macedonians, he desires that they might excel in that grace. Well, what is that grace? He defines it in verses 2 through 5, and this is, uh, if you're taking notes, this is point one on your outline there. Grace, or in the Greek is charis or charis, refers to God's undeserved gifts of, or kindnesses, all of which flow from his primary expression of grace, and that namely is the Father's merciful reconciliation of, him, of himself to, uh, to sinners to himself in Christ. And Paul wants the Corinthians and us to excel in that grace to so plant our roots in God's reconciling work that we excel in it. Think about that for a moment. We usually think of excelling in work or in sports or in the arts, things like that. Usually that comes about by hard work and practice. So too, we need to practice the undeserved grace we have received in Christ. Well, how do we practice it? By stepping out, taking risks, stepping out and sharing our faith with others, stepping out and serving and loving others who aren't so lovable. And here Paul indicates it is stepping out in generosity. 
See, Paul is reminding them about the Macedonians because he wants them to think more seriously about the experience of others and draw out implications for themselves. So what he's basically doing is preaching them a sermon out of the very lives and experiences of other churches. What he says is that the grace of God received by the Macedonians was their ability to literally well up with a wealth of generosity toward others in the midst of and despite their own weaknesses and difficulties. See, only God's grace can do that. Only the grace of God is able to produce this kind of generosity which rises up from the soil, as he says, of their extreme poverty on the one hand, but at the same time, it's coming forth from their overflowing joy. See, we don't usually think of poverty and joy going hand in hand, but that's exactly what happens when God's grace is powerfully at work in people's lives. The Macedonians displayed a real and mature faith. They passed the test, as Paul puts it in verse 2 there, he said, as he puts it, in much testing of affliction. See, not only did they hold up under adversity, they gave generously with joy. And what this reveals is a real and genuine faith and grace that was at work through the power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and in the community. So uh, again, if you're keeping notes, point two is this. Their wealth was their joy in what God had done for them. Think about that for a moment. Their wealth wasn't in money and comfortable things in this world, but their wealth was their joy in what God had done for them. And this is what spilled over to others. So the question I think pops into our minds, where is our wealth? See, the motivation to give was God's work within their hearts. They weren't being manipulated by other people. It was their poverty and their joy that combined to produce an abundant generosity beyond what they had. In fact, as Paul puts it, they pleaded to be involved. Paul refers to their participation in the collection for the poor Jerusalem church as a grace or a cherice. And the NIV translates it as their privilege. So here's the point. It is God's grace and a great privilege to be involved with other people of God in God's mission. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. And while you're in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is going to come about pretty soon. So what are you going to do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's really only one answer. You should immediately cash it in for U.S. currency, right? The only money that will have any value once the war is over. 
You see, you're only going to keep enough Confederate money to meet your short-term needs. And so here's the point of my illustration. As a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by the return of Jesus Christ. So, uh, in other words, what you're being given in God's Word is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Jesus returns, or when you die, whichever comes first. Look with me again at uh, verse 5 here. Paul writes, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and, by, and then by the will of God also to us. And so this is point three on your outline. The most important thing for Paul is not that the Macedonians gave their money to others, but that they gave their lives to God and to God's agent, God's apostle Paul. See, when Paul says that they gave themselves first to the Lord, he's not talking about a priority of allegiance. The Macedonian giving is a reflection of, of God's work in their lives. It's a reflection of their maturity and their growth and their understanding of their identity in Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of their relationship and their understanding of both physical and spiritual realities. It's a reflection of their devotion to God. And now he uh, turns to the Corinthians. See, they had started a collection for Jerusalem, but then they rebelled. And in the midst of their rebellion, they had stopped. And now with their recent repentance, now once again they are given the opportunity to give themselves to God like the Macedonians and to receive the grace that the Macedonians had received by participating in giving generously. This is what happens when the grace of God takes root in a church. And so point four is this. When you truly receive grace, you truly give grace. Last week we uh, looked at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, the great chapter on forgiveness. But we didn't read the end of that chapter where Jesus tells the parable of the wealthy man who was forgiven a massively large debt by the king. A debt that would surpass any known debt of any individual in that time of history. That man then goes out, and instead of out of joy for what he's received, instead he goes out and refuses to forgive a reasonable-sized debt of one of his servants to him. So the king then calls that wealthy man in and he condemns him. And the point is is that his behavior and his attitude displayed a person who had not truly received the grace and forgiveness of God. That's part of what Paul is referring to here in this text. See, Paul points out that a person who has truly received the grace of God in Jesus Christ lives in such a way as to display grace in generosity toward others. 
Once having received grace from God, it leads us to expressing grace to others in the form of generosity. Now look with me at verses 8 through 10. Paul writes these words, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. See, Paul uh, now is going to come back to a core example. See, the purpose of setting up these examples is to create what is often referred to as positive tests. He's giving the Corinthians and us the stimulus to live out our faith in the way that God desires. And the example of the Macedonians isn't being given by Paul to create competition between churches. But rather, it's to call them to join their brothers and sisters in Christ, to join the saints in Macedonia in living out their faith boldly. One uh, scholar put it this way, genuine obedience is an act of delight-driven duty. The greatest way to honor the one who commands is not to obey because one must, but to do what is required with joy having willingly given oneself to his authority. And Paul now here turns to the most important model, who is Jesus. In Jesus, God's grace finds its fullest expression in love. Jesus, who pre-existed in heaven, chose to enter into a very humble and poor life, including death. Why? Well, he did it so that we might be saved and that we might receive justification through his death, through his poverty, as Paul puts it. And so this is point five on your outline. The grace of generosity is the willingness to give up our rights for the sake of meeting the needs of others. See, for the Corinthians, it's to consider the needs of the saints in Jerusalem as more important than their own. See, what Paul is doing is basically calling on the Corinthians to finish what they started. You see, they had begun in eager willingness, and now he calls them to persevere and complete in joy and in love what they had started so that the work of the Spirit in their lives might come to full fruition. While there is this call to give because it's being involved in the grace of God, there's no obligation to give beyond one's means. Unlike the Macedonians who gave above and beyond, this isn't an obligation of God's grace, and Paul makes this clear here. Paul isn't trying to manipulate the believers in Corinth to give beyond like the Macedonians. See, it isn't that, it's, that one is supposed to measure up against other people. But it is out of the fullness of one's heart that true generosity flows. It's not the amount being given, but the expression of willingness, as Paul is telling them and us. And so, 
point six is this. Actions without the right attitude is not what God desires. Rather, God desires a genuine heart attitude that's filled with the grace of generosity because of the generosity that Jesus has shown us. And that eventually leads to results in action. And so Paul tells us that it has to do with helping one another in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. This isn't about charity. Paul in the verse 12 writes this, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to one, what one doesn't have. See, what makes the gift acceptable to God is the willingness to give in accordance with the means that one has. And it's not the amount. Edie Ogan tells a story of a particular moment in her life. She writes these words, I'll never forget Easter of 1946. I was 14, my little sister Osi, 12, and my older sister Darlene, 16. We lived at home with our mother, and the four of us knew what it was like to do without many things. You see, my dad had died five years before, leaving mom with seven school kids to raise and no money. By 1946, my older sisters were married and my brothers had left home. A month before Easter, the pastor of our church announced that a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and to give sacrificially. So when we got home, we talked about what we could do. We decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 of our grocery money for the offering. Then we thought that if we kept our electric lights turned out as much as possible, and if we didn't listen to the radio, we'd save money on that month's electric bill. Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysat for everyone we could. So for, 14, for 15 cents, we could buy enough cotton loops to make three potholders, which we could sell for a dollar, and we made $20 on potholders. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day we counted the money to see how much we had saved, And at night, we'd sit in the dark and talk about how the poor family was going to enjoy having the money the church would give them. We figured we had about 80 people in our church, so that uh, figured out that whatever the amount of money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times that much. After all, every Sunday, the pastor had reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, O.C. and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all of our change. We uh, ran all the way home to show Mom and Darlene we had never had so much money before. That night, we were so excited we could hardly sleep. We didn't care that we wouldn't have new clothes for Easter. We had $70 for the sacrificial offering. We could hardly wait to get to church. On Sunday morning, rain was pouring. We didn't own an umbrella. 
and the church was over a mile from our home, but it didn't seem to matter how wet we got. Darlene had cardboard in her shoes to fill the holes. The cardboard came apart and her feet got wet, but we sat in church proudly, despite how we looked. I heard some teenagers talking about the Smith girls having on their old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes, and I felt so rich. When the sacrificial offering was taken, we were sitting on the second row from the front. Mom put in the $10 bill, and each of us girls put in a 20 As we walked home after church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise for us. She'd bought a dozen eggs, and we had boiled Easter eggs with our fried potatoes. Later that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went to the door, talked with him for a moment, and then came back with an envelope in her hand. We asked what it was, but she didn't say a word. She opened the envelope, and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, and 17 $1 bills. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, but instead just sat and stared at the floor. We'd gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. We kids had had such a happy life that really we felt sorry for anyone who didn't have our mom and dad for parents and a full house of brothers and sisters and other kids visiting constantly. We thought it was fun to share the silverware and see whether we got the fork or the spoon that night. We had two knives which we passed around to whoever needed them. I knew we didn't have a lot of things that other people did, but I'd never thought we were poor. That Easter day, I found out we were poor. The minister had brought us the money for the poor family, so we had to be poor. I didn't like being poor. I looked at my dress and my worn-out shoes and felt so ashamed that I didn't want to go back to church. Everyone there probably already knew we were poor, I thought about school. I was in the ninth grade and at the top of my class of over a hundred students. I wondered if the kids at school knew we were poor. I decided I could quit school since I had finished the eighth grade and that was all the, requ- the law required at the time. We sat in silence for a long time. Then it got dark and we went to bed. All that week we girls went to school and came home and no one talked much. Finally, on Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. Well, what what did poor people do with money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. We didn't want to go to church on Sunday. Mom said we had to. Although it was a sunny day, we didn't talk on the way. Mom started to sing, but no one joined in, and she only sang one verse. At church, we had a missionary speak. He talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would put a roof on a church. So the minister said, can't we all sacrifice to help these poor people? We looked at each other and smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me, and I handed it to Osi. Osi put it in the offering plate. When the offering was counted, the minister announced that it was a little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from our small church. He said, you must have some 
rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given $87 of that little over 100. We were the rich family in the church. Hadn't the missionary said so? Deep down I knew that we were actually a rich family. I want you to see something about what Paul is telling us. The collection was much more than simple charity. It had a profound theological purpose for the Corinthians and for us. For the Corinthians, it was the means by which God's work of sanctifying grace would continue in their lives. And so point seven is this on your outline. Participating in the collection, participating in giving, was a means to becoming more like Jesus. And it was also a way to unify the church. See, it forces them and us to see that Christians in different parts of the nation and different parts of the world are really all part of our family. They are saints and brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the need for, of others, parts of the church, force us to recognize that we are all part of the larger body of Christ. We are unified together. For them, for the Corinthians, it also broke down other barriers between Jew and Greek, rich and poor. And for us, it also destroys those false barriers of race Barriers that are created by this world. The entire issue also has a lot to do with all the resources that are put into our hands. Resources of time and energy, talents, as well as money. We are stewards of all those things. They are not ours. And so point eight is this. If we have truly given all of our lives over to God, then all the resources that we have at hand belong ultimately to Him. See, God wants to deal with our heart attitudes. And generosity comes from a response to God's grace in our heart. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It ignores the barriers that are set up by this world. And it always remembers that all we are is to be given to Jesus. It's an identity issue. When our esteem is in Christ, when our identity is in Jesus, when we understand that all we are, all that we have, is to be given over to Jesus, then it is always with joy that we give generously to what God desires us to give. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving and merciful Lord, You have graced us with so much. Your love and Your grace have abounded to us beyond anything that we deserve. You have been so generous beyond everything to us. 
And so like Edie and her family, we are rich. Rich in faith, rich in so many things that money cannot buy. And Lord, what a joy just like them to be able to give generously, to give to your work, both here and around the world. Thank you for your rich and lavish love that you have poured out on us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we prepare our hearts for the communion table this morning, I invite you to turn in your bulletin to the inside back page, and I believe it will be on the screen as well. Let's join together in uh, our confession as we pray to the Lord together. Let's pray. O Father, we are gathered before you, the maker of heaven and earth, whose chosen dwelling place is with the broken and contrite, to confess that we have sinned in thought and word and deed. We have not loved you with all our heart and soul. We have not loved you with all our mind and strength. We have not even loved our neighbor as ourselves. In your mercy, deepen our sorrow 